0: Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: Every person, regardless of where they are, or how old they are, or how rich they are, or how poor they are, or the color of their skin, or what language they speak, or whatever, every person has to come to this understanding of who he is.
0: Who is Jesus? That's a question the world has been asking for 2,000 years. And it's a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples during his earthly ministry. His disciples had been slow to understand fully who Jesus was and what his mission was. If the disciples were going to carry the message of Jesus to the world, they were going to need to understand who he really was. But were they ready to understand?
1: That just raises a question for us is how clearly do we really see Jesus? Do we really see and understand who he is and what it is that he is doing? And maybe even to ask this idea, is my sight progressing? Is my sight developing or or am I still kind of
0: foggy or unclear. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We've reached the halfway point in the book of Mark in our series, Jesus, the Real Action Hero. As Pastor Clay is going to explain in today's message, there was a lot going on in the latter part of the eighth chapter of the book of Mark. Jesus is trying to help His disciples understand more fully who He was and His purpose in coming. As you'll hear today, the disciples didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say because it didn't fit into their idea of how things were supposed to go. They were going to have to learn that they had to bend their wills to God's and not the other way around. Now, here's Pastor Clay.
1: If you were here last week, you may remember uh, earlier up in Chapter Eight, we didn't finish. Uh, that last part of last week's message. Now, let me just uh, highlight it, or let Tyler highlight it for you. Last week, we we talked about several things. One of the things we talked about in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 8 is that a short-term memory results in a short-sighted faith. And the disciples certainly had a short term memory but as we talked about then not that they literally forgot but that practically they had forgotten uh, everything that Jesus was doing who Jesus all that kind of thing so second we said this we said a hard-hearted approach receives a hard line response when the religious leaders came at Jesus and oh, we want a sign from heaven all this other stuff you've been doing is not good enough for us we want you to come to us on our terms and as I said last week it never works that way It doesn't work that way. Uh, Third, we said a slow-to-grasp learner requires a slow-to-pass lesson. Can I get a witness? Anybody feel like they've been in a lesson for a while? It's like, whew, God. (laughs) God, please. (laughs) I think I've got this one. And God's like, I think you don't. So, uh, but, that, but that's, that's the case. And the disciples, and we're going to continue with this today. You're going to see how this is going to continue to unfold in chapter 8. But uh, they are slow to learn this. They are slow to get a hold of the idea of who uh, Jesus is. And so then uh, the one we didn't get to last week, that I just want to mention before we move on, I'll read the text. I want you to hear it because it's a very unusual circumstance. It's a very unusual uh, miracle that Jesus performs, or I think it is. And, and it was this idea, and this was from last week. So this, uh, but it looks like this, a developing sign... I believe, reflects a developing, uh, uh, developing faith, a developing sight. Developing sign uh, reflects a developing sight. Now, here's what I want to read. I'm in, I'm in Mark chapter 8. The text will be up on the screen. Uh, if you've got a copy of God's Word, you're in Mark chapter 8. But I'm going to read verses 22 through 26, and then we'll get in to uh, the rest of the, the text today. But listen to this. So all this has been going on, and we just looked at some of that, and he says, And they came to Bethsaida... And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Jesus, touch this guy, heal this guy. Taking the blind man by the hand, watch this, he brought him out of the village. So he takes him away from the rest of the people. And after spitting on his eyes, (laughs) after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So right there we get kind of a clue. Even in the way Jesus asked that question, do, don't we we get kind of a clue that jesus is not finished here otherwise why would he even ask him do you see anything uh, how, how's that working for you your eye doctor you go to your eye doctor and he's flipping all those things how's that look do you see anything verse 24 and he looked up the the, the blind man and said well I, I see men for i see them like like trees walking around in other words it is it's blurry you can, can see they can see there's some men there but wait it sure isn't sure isn't clear Then again, verse 25, he, Jesus, laid his hands on his eyes, on the blind man's eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Verse 26, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. By the way, I think the whole taking him out of the village and not even letting him go back to the village had to do with just, uh, this is just, this is not what the, the... miracles Jesus did he cared about people and they they were evidence of who he was but in the end this is not really about the 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 miracles that Jesus can do that's not really what this is about and in Bethsaida they had seen Jesus power on a number of occasions but it never seemed to make any difference it was just about what they could get out of him and so Jesus like don't even go back to the village that's remember the religious leaders had just said give us a sign from heaven so but what, what's interesting here is, I don't believe... This, the way that Jesus heals here is it's a very strange thing. He, he puts saliva, he spits on it, he puts saliva on his eyes, and then he says, well, can you see anything? He says, well, I, I, I can kind of see, but, but, but not really, not, not clearly. And then he touches his eyes again, and and then everything is clear. Now, Jesus is God, okay? He doesn't have to heal this way. He just The Syrophoenician woman, uh, the last miracle we just looked at uh, just a little bit back... He didn't even go to her house. He, he just said, your daughter is, is, is whole. She's, she's healed. It's done. So he doesn't have to heal it. I believe that Jesus heals his way. And some people speculate that perhaps it was because the blind man didn't have uh, a, a lot of faith. Or maybe he was lacking in his faith. I don't think that's the case. I think you find plenty of places in Scripture where there's indications that people had maybe no faith at all. But God still was accomplishing his purpose. I think that it had nothing to do with the blind man's lack of faith. I think it had to do with the disciples' lack of faith. Do you remember what he's just been saying? He's been trying to teach them this truth. He's trying to get them to get who he is. He does the feeding of the four thousand, and, and then he and then then they get in this whole thing in the boat. Where, oh, we forgot to bring bread. Y'all, last week, y'all remember that? And Jesus is like, "Really, guys? That's what you?" And in verse twenty-one, winds up in verse twenty-one, and he says, "This: Do you still not understand? Do you still not get this?" And then he immediately goes and does this healing. I believe the healing that Jesus healed. In this way because he wanted to demonstrate, pun intended, in a very visual way that the disciples, they could see. They could see a little. Do you all know what I'm saying? That they, they had some concept, some idea of who Jesus was. They could kind of see what Jesus was doing, but they were not seeing clearly. They were not understanding clearly who he was. And clearly, he is wanting them to get this. Clearly, he is wanting them to understand this. So I think he demonstrates in this in this through the process of this miracle and the way that he does it, that you, your sight is, is, is short. It's, it's limited. You're, you're kind of seeing, but you've got to see more. Now, uh, that just raises a question for us, and this is going to lead straight on in. It just flows so beautifully. Uh, but it's gonna, so it's going to go right into the rest of the message. But it, it does bring up that idea for us, is how clearly do we really see Jesus? How, re- how clearly do we really see and understand who he is and what it is that he is doing? And maybe even to ask this idea... Is my sight progressing? Is my sight developing? Yeah, or, or am I still, you know, two years removed or ten years removed or however long that I've been a, a follower of Jesus, am I still, is it still kind of foggy or, or unclear or whatever else? There should be this progression. Now, watch how, how the story progresses in chapter 8 and how it begins to work. I'm going to give you some, like I said, some action uh, statements or declarations and then we'll read the text. We'll start with this one uh, first. We're going to start with a great declaration in verse 27 through 30. So uh, he heals the, the blind man in this unusual way. And then watch this? Verse uh, 27, he says, uh, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, so they're, they're traveling there, they're walking there. On the way, he questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him saying, Uh, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others, uh, one of the, one of the prophets, one of the other prophets. Verse 29, and he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, well, you're the Christ. You're the, you're the Christ. Verse 30, he warned them not to tell anyone about that, about that. And the reason we've talked about this before, that it wasn't the people, and it's clear from their response, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus was at this point. Do you think we can all agree on that? There's a lot of confusion. He's been trying to teach them. They don't seem to be getting... He, he, verse 21, he says, do you still not understand? Then he gives them this very visual picture of... Have the fact that they're seeing, but they're not really seeing. And then he goes straight into this questioning. Jesus is trying to lead them somewhere. He goes straight into this questioning. And he says, hey, uh, who do people say that I am? And it's clear from their response that there is a lot of confusion about this. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist, maybe reincarnated because he got killed. Or, or some people uh, say that you're Elijah. There was some, you know, this is understanding that he was. And then some say you're this other prophet and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of confusion. And to be honest with you, most people probably didn't even care. I mean, I was, I was, honestly, most people probably didn't even care. It was just, it was just what, what can this guy do for me? What, what kind of miracle work can I get out of this? Or, For most people, they, it probably didn't make that much difference. But then Jesus turns it and he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Right, because he's been trying to, get them, he tried to get, them, get them here, trying to get them to where he's trying to get them. He, he's getting on to them, they're not getting it, he's in it, and he gives him this visual image, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? Now, I'm of the belief, it's just pure speculation, but uh, I, I'm of the belief that probably the rest of the disciples, that this was one time when they were more than happy to let Peter speak first. You know, Peter tended to, to jump in there, tended to be, you know, he was a leader, and he tended to want to kind of do it that way, and, and I can just imagine, because like I said, Jesus is, he has scolded them a couple different times with their lack of faith, their lack of understanding. And now he's, and now he's asking this, this intro question. Oh, this person, this person, this person. But now he's put them on. But who do you say that I am? So I'm, I'm just thinking there may very well be a collective sigh from the rest of the disciples when Peter goes. Uh, they're, they're probably pretty happy about that. And Peter doesn't get it wrong, does he? Peter does not get it wrong. Peter knocks it out of the ballpark. This is... A, this is the great declaration. You are the Christ. Christ was the, was the Greek term. In, in Hebrew, it would have been Messiah. It meant the anointed one, the, the, the expected one, the one that was going to come. Now, we've, throughout this study, we have compared the gospel accounts, right? Because that's how you come up with a full account. You, you see what Mark says, you see what Matthew says, what Luke says, all those kinds of things. In Matthew's account of this... Matthew tells us that Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. So Matthew kind of gives us the whole whole spiel of what he said. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Matthew also tells us then that Jesus commends Peter for this statement. Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is a great declaration. Now... Let me tell you why this matters uh, or why this is, is important for us. Every person, regardless of where they are or how old they are or how rich they are or how poor they are or the color of their skin or what language they speak or whatever, every person has to come to this understanding of who he is. Because, because can I tell you this? And, and, and you know this, you're out in the world uh, living out there. You know this is true. But as much confusion as there was back then... That's right, that's right. Same today. Still a lot of confusion today. Listen to me. Some people say, well, he was, he was a good teacher. Some people say he, uh, he, 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 was a, he was a good man. The Muslims believe that he was a, a good prophet. But listen to me. He was none of those things. He is the great king, the great savior. He is the great God. And, and that's a foundation that we all have to understand. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's account of this response, Jesus says to Peter... And he makes this play on words, and most of you are familiar with this, or some of you may be familiar with this, but he, he says, you're Peter, and in Greek the, the word is, is uh, Petros. You're, 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 and Peter meant little, little stone or little rock. you're you're little rock. And upon this, and he changes the word, upon this Petra, upon this gigantic boulder of a statement that you have just made. You've just declared, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that rock, that boulder, that gigantic statement, that's what I'm going to build my church on. Peter, on that statement. So, this becomes central to our belief system. It has to start with that understanding. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But, now watch this, just knowing that and just believing that is not all of the story. Because right on the heels of this great declaration comes this, a divine revelation. Watch what happened. And I said, there's a lot happening in this chapter, and I didn't, I wanted to try and give you all of it. That's why we're breaking it down in such little pieces. But watch this in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, I... (laughs) If you're a disciple, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa I, don't, I don't remember that part. But you see, listen, it, it's not enough to understand who he is. You've got to understand what it is that his purpose is, what it is that he came for. You have to understand this, this truth in our lives that we need a savior. And I think I've got a little, little statement here for you, but the statement is basically this. In order to be the savior of our lives, he was going to have to be the sacrifice for our lives. And, and, and they, 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 weren't, they weren't grasping that. And can I tell you, it, the fact that they were not grasping, it wasn't because Jesus wasn't clear about it. Going to be accused, going to be arrested, going to be beaten, going to be put to death, and three days later I'm going to rise again. I'm going to come back to life. It wasn't because he wasn't playing about it, and he taught them this over and over and over again. Now, here's a question for you. How does Jesus know this? How, how, how does Jesus know that this is what's going to happen? He's not vague. He's not, you know, Nostradamus, well, in the 21st century. I mean, he's just like going be, to be arrested, falsely accused, going to be beaten, going be, to be crucified, going to be put to death. How does he know that? There's only one way. He is God. He is God. Listen, think about it. From, because I've said to you, a lot of people say, well, he's a good man. He's a good teacher. He's a good prophet. Listen. Let me tell you what a man would think in this situation. Well, <laughs> some some of you uh, ladies that live with men probably think I know what men think. But, but let me tell you what a man would think. Wow. Hey. Hey. This is going pretty good. Look at this crowd. Look at look at, look at this crowd that's following me. Look at how things are progressing. Look at how things are going. I, I, this is going to work out. I believe. I, I believe they're going to really recognize who I am, and, this, and they're, they're going to they're want me to be their king. And, and this, this is all, all going to go good. Listen, that's what a man who doesn't have knowledge of the future—that's what a man would, would naturally think. But that's not what Jesus thinks. It is a divine revelation. He is God. Now, by the way, that, that should can, can I just say this? Uh, that should be an encouragement to those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus Christ. That that should be an encouragement to us that that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an accident. It, it, it wasn't a mistake. He didn't just blunder into that situation. It wasn't even a tragedy. It was a victory. His. Death brought our life, and his resurrection will bring our resurrection. Getting a new body. Just, uh, just throw that out there. Y'all getting a new body if you follow Jesus. All right, divine revelation. Wait, wait, that's good. All right, let me. <laughs> I, I probably I better move on. We've got to move on. What time is it? All right, let's move on. Let's talk about an arrogant demonstration. Y'all all right? Y'all are so sp- spread out today. Verse 32. Uh, and he was stating the matter plainly. Jesus. Hey, going to die. He was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Say what? (laughs) Can I tell y'all something? Listen, this should be, for every person in this room that professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be a clear warning to every single one of us of how quickly we can get in the flesh. Listen. Listen. This, uh, like I said a moment ago, this, has been, this is a high-water mark in Peter's life. He has knocked it out of the ballpark. He's just declared that Jesus is the Christ. And I'm t- it couldn't have been more than two or three minutes at the most later that he is now rebuking Jesus. He's now getting on to Jesus. And I can just, you know, I know I don't, it's not written down, I don't know, but I can, I, I've got a baptized imagination. I can imagine how it went. Jesus! What are you saying this kind of stuff for? You, we're never going to get people to follow you if, if you keep talking all this kind of talk about getting killed. People don't want to follow somebody that's going to get killed, Jesus. Jesus, I, I don't want to hear any more of this talk like this. He's just declared him the one, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. In the next moment, he is rebuking the son of God. There's only one reason why, Jesus, why Peter would do that. He didn't like the plan, Right? In the end, that's the only reason he would have for rebuking Jesus. He didn't like the plan. The plan Jesus just announced, accused, arrested, abused, beaten, killed, rise again. That plan didn't fit into the plan that Peter already had in his mind. And it, it, it was arrogant. It was an arrogant demonstration. I, I, was, uh, I was reading recently um, about... Uh, an event that took place in 2008 in China, actually. Uh, there was uh, a man borrowed some money from another man. Uh, what The article said the equivalent of about $70, 70 bucks U.S. He borrowed some money to help pay for a wedding. He was getting ready to get married, and he needed money for his wedding. And so he borrowed money from a guy and promised to pay the guy back, uh, you know, just as quickly and as soon as he could. Well, a year later, uh, the man hadn't paid back a dime. And so the man who loaned him the money went to see the man uh, and demanded that he give him his money that he told him he would pay him back and, and give him. Apparently, according to the article, uh, this uh, confrontation ensued between the two of them. They start wrangling back and forth about all this. And, and the, the man that, that loaned the money wants his money, demands his money. The man that borrowed the money, says uh, he denies it. He says, I, didn't even, I never even borrowed any money from you. And so... According to the article, the man who had loaned him the money was apparently a God-fearing man. And so he said to the man that he loaned the money to, he said, well, I'll tell you what. If you will, if you will swear to God that you didn't borrow any money from me, I'll walk away and you'll, that'll be the end of it. I, I, if, if, you can, if you can stand here and say, and you can swear to God that you didn't borrow any money from me, I'll walk away and I'll be done with it. The man who borrowed the money apparently saw this as a great opportunity. <laughs> he apparently was not a God-fearing man and apparently saw this as a great opportunity to get out of his debt because, because the article says that, that the man then reaches down, he picks up a pipe, I don't know if it was a piece of rebar or a pipe, I don't know what it was, a, a metal pipe, and he holds it up in the air and he, and, he, and he shouts out, he says, may God strike me dead if I have, no, I'm sorry, I said, may God strike me with lightning if I have ever borrowed any money from then he says the man's name pow (laughs) according to this was not a christian matter this according to the article the man was struck by lightning uh on the spot he he, the article said he lived that that he did survive they took him wherever they took him uh and he did survive but there was no report on whether the man ever paid the money back or not but this this is clear ladies and gentlemen. god does not like arrogance I'm telling you, God does not like arrogance. Can I remind you just a, a few verses, just show you a few verses that, that deal with this idea of, of arrogance. First Samuel 2, 3 says, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Don't, don't do this. Do you think you have the, the right to do this? Second uh, Kings chapter nineteen. Because of your rage, because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This is God speaking. How about this one in Proverbs chapter eight? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate. Do this one. Proverbs chapter thirty. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. And then one more in James chapter 4. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is, say it, evil. All such boasting is evil. Okay, okay, Clay, we get it. God doesn't like boasting. God doesn't like arrogance. But I would never, I would never boast. I I would never be arrogant. And even if I was a little uh, uh, boastful or egotistical at times, time, even if I was a little arrogant to presume that I would, never, I would never rebuke God, I would dare say that that is what every single one of us have done at one time or another. Because you need to understand, it doesn't, God doesn't have to be s- literally standing in the flesh beside you, like he was for Peter, for you to do the same thing that Peter did. I, I would I would propose that every single one of us have at some time or another because isn't that what Peter did? What, why did why did Peter rebuke God? Didn't like his plan. God, no, uh-uh, no, Jesus, that's not no. This is not the plan. This is not the way things ought to go. This is not what what you ought to do. How many of us at some time or another have said, God, uh, 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 are you even are you even? tuned into the same station I am, God. What is going God, why is this working out this way? God, what is this doing? God, why are you working out? God, why is this happening? God, no, nobody in here has ever done that? Nobody's ever questioned what God is doing? Nobody's even, even thought that perhaps you knew better. Maybe you'd never say it that way, but that in a sense, boy, it would, everything would work out better if it just went this way, God. Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that boasting? Isn't that being arrogant? Isn't that, in a sense, rebuking God and telling him that you know better than he knows? I think it is. So, uh, look at this. When it comes to God's will and God's way, it's one thing to honestly not know and have questions for Him. It's another thing to think you do know and put demands on Him. Because I, because I do think it is possible to, 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 ha- to question, God, I, I don't understand what's happening. God, I, I, don't, I don't think that that is necessarily arrogant. But as we've talked about several times last week, it's always coming back to the attitude of the heart and where my heart is in, in all of this. So I, I do think that, that it's one thing to honestly not know and have questions for him. That's how we receive clarity. That's how we honor him by going to him. That sort of thing. It's another thing to think you do know, which is what Peter did. I certainly know it's what I've done at times to think that I know better, and in some sense to put demands on him. God, you got to do this. God, you got to come through and do that. God, you got. So here's what I would suggest, and I've I've had to think about. I've, I've done a lot of this this week, but here's here's what you've got to do. First, you you've got to be transparent. You got. You got to see. You got to see it. You got to see through yourself. You got to see through the, 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 whatever. And you've got to accept your arrogance before God. You got to say, you know what I. You you got to get real transparent, and you got to see it for yourself. You got to come to this place where you're willing to recognize that there's been some arrogance or, or perhaps pride in your life over what you think it ought to be, or how God ought to act, or what God how God should respond to something that you're praying for, you're asking for, you think work out best second uh besides being transparent you need to be humble It's not just not just see it but you you've got to acknowledge it to god you got you got to be willing to say god i have been i have been arrogant to you it's it's bad enough to be arrogant or prideful to some man but to you lord god i have become arrogant i have thought these thoughts or i've said these things or i've acted in this way which then leads to the third step you got to be repentant you got to ask for forgiveness for your arrogance from god and and i really it was just giving some soul-searching to this week and, and thinking of ways that, that I perhaps have been arrogant, because I thought something should go this way, or I thought the church should, this should happen at the church, or I thought this or I thought that, and, and I had to just say, "God, forgive me for being arrogant towards you. You are God, and I am not, and whatever the plans are, however crazy that plan may have sounded to Peter, and however things may look sometimes crazy to me, you're God and I'm not. How dare I arrogantly think? that I can tell you how it should go. Okay, so now watch what happens after this, this uh, arrogant step. Comes a needed condemnation in verse 33. Uh, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, I, that's one time, man, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to have been on a fly on the wall. Because I'm thinking that that just must have come as a shock to Peter and the rest of the disciples. Although, you know, really in some sense it probably shouldn't have been that much of a shock because Jesus is not afraid of hurting their feelings. He has he has gotten on to them several times about things that they are not doing right. But still, I mean Peter is you know, he's the leader. Peter has just made this great great declaration, and Jesus looks right at him and he says, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> that's bold, that's strong, and it's probably not what Peter was Expecting, get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man. See, here's the deal: as Jesus says, Peter's interest, his mind is set on man's interest. Now, I said this a while back in the series. It certainly would have been a better thing for Jesus to just claim the throne of Israel right then. It would have been a better thing for for Israel and the disciples, right? Anybody disagree with that? That would have been a far greater thing. And that, and we know that's what Peter was thinking because he rebukes him for saying that he was going to get killed and he's going to die and and all this kind of stuff. It certainly would have, in man's interest, it would have been better, as I said a few weeks ago, for a righteous king. It's always better for a righteous king to sit on the throne. Uh, Israel, uh, Herod was immoral if he's thrown out. The, The Romans, they were brutal. They were cruel if they're thrown out. And Jesus just says, hey, I'm here taking this throne. And he sits down. That certainly would have been better for Peter for the rest of the disciples, for the nation of Israel. But listen to me, here's the thing. God had a better plan. God had a better purpose for what all was going to happen. God had a greater vision for what was going to happen. And so, our I've said this before, our finiteness, makes us look so much at man that all Peter could see was his little purposes and his little plans, and he couldn't see the greater picture, the greater vision that God had of making it possible for the entire world to be redeemed, for making it possible for any man, woman, boy, or girl to come to God and have a relationship with God through his sacrifice that we talked about earlier on the cross. God was making that plan. That was, made, that was where God was going with this. That was God's interests. Man's interests were, hey, let's get the Romans out of town. And listen, I was thinking about this uh, some this week. Uh, this is why I think this is important for us. Because what, what Peter needed was a swift kick in the ego. I mean, he really did. And that's exactly what Jesus gave him. He called him Satan. He didn't even call him like a demon. <laughs> he went straight to the, to the big ass. Yeah, you're Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter needed a swift kick in the ego because Peter needed to be reminded who was God and who wasn't. Now, and I don't know, but just what what do you think? I began to think this week, what would have happened? I'd never thought about this before, but what would have happened if Jesus had had not condemned Peter for a statement? What if Jesus had just, you know, let that one go on right on by? Well, he's stupid. He doesn't know any better. I won't say anything. I'll just let that one go. I'm very patient anyway. I'll just let that one go. I, I, After thinking about this a lot, I'm convinced that that would have only emboldened Peter to become more and more questionable about God's plans. And, and this thought, I'd never thought about this before. And I, you know, I know God's sovereign and God, you know, everything God knows how it's going to work out. But I wonder if Peter, had it not been for Jesus' rebuke, could Peter have ended up at the same place where Judas did? Because we know, uh, essentially, Judas rejected Christ ultimately because he saw this thing was, was going south from his perspective. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't going to set up his throne. He wasn't going to be part of the, the big posse. This wasn't going to turn out the way he wanted. This, and so he's going to cut his losses and get 30 pieces of silver out of it at least. Is it possible that Peter could have ended up in that same place if Jesus hadn't rebuked him and called him out and said, Peter, you don't even know what you're talking about. Peter, you are looking at man's interest and not God's interest. Same thing is true in our lives. Listen, can I just tell you when, and... Maybe we don't always know it, but there's times, I think, when God brings a rebuke against me, and I know it, man. I know it's God bringing a rebuke against me about something. And rather than becoming angry or, or upset or, or arrogant, what we need to do is just humble ourselves and say, God, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to follow my way. I don't, I don't want to act in the flesh. I don't want to do these things. God, would you help me to be the man or the woman that you want me to be in this process, Lord God? This, this rebuke was needed in his life. All right, uh, now let's get to the next one. A theological explanation. The story is progressing. One thing after another. But now watch this. Listen to this. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, listen to this now. Remember, that, remember with the, the context. All this discussion with the disciples. All, you know, all this stuff that's been going on. The rebuke that he's just made of Peter. He summons the crowd with his disciples. Y'all, y'all come here. Come here. This is right after, you know, Peter, you know, Lord, don't be talking that way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All of y'all, come here, come here. <laughs> and he gathers them up and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me. You see what he's doing? He said, wait a minute. Let's just stop and clarify this whole thing right now. Let's make sure everybody understands what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You guys follow me around all over Galilee and, and Timbuktu. But now you, you better understand what this really means to follow me. Let's do some some theological clarification here. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus says, says, hey, time out. Come here. Come here, everybody. Listen. If you didn't like what I had to say about me dying, then you're going to hate this next part because you're going to have to die too. You're going to have to die too. Now, there certainly have been through the years, many men, women, and children who have been murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. But, but, it, but it's pretty, it, and that can happen depending on the part of the world you are or situation that still can happen today. But it's pretty clear that, that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. Uh, the statement that I have looks like this. You don't have to literally experience physical death if you want to be his follower. You don't have to literally experience physical, that could happen, but you don't have to literally experience physical death to be his follower, but you do have to literally experience spiritual death if you want to be his follower, that, that's just the deal. That's just how it goes. That's just where it is. You have to be willing to do this. And you need a, you need a theological clarification here because if you think this is about just following me around and seeing me feed a bunch of people or, or restore sight to somebody or or even sit as king on the throne of Israel, you, you've missed it and you need to understand something. This is not just about what I'm going to accomplish. This is about what you're going to accomplish. This is about who you're going to be and who I'm creating you to be. And this is so important because I, I didn't say this a while ago, but in Matthew's version of this story when when jesus uh commends peter for a statement you're the christ you're the son of the living god and peter and jesus says blessed are you simon bar jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven jesus goes on to say you're peter upon this rock will build my church and then he says and to you, I am giving the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I believe that Jesus was talking to all disciples at that point. I really do. These are all disciples. He said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever is loosed in heaven shall be loosed on earth. In other words, hey, hey, guys, listen, I'm, I, I'm giving you the truth. I'm giving you the keys to this whole thing. I've already declared in heaven how this is going to go. I've already made it possible so that salvation, I'm going I'm to pay the price so that all mankind can be free and so that this world can be redeemed, so it can be loosed on earth. But you're the key. You have the keys. If You're going to be the ones that are going to unlock the doors so that other people can come into a relationship. Jew, Gentile, everybody, that they're going to be able to, to come in. So you better understand that this is not about sitting on a throne. This is not about having authority. This is about you dying to yourself and living for me and living for other people. It is a theological... Really, clarification at this point. Now, here's, here's the way it, it breaks down. In verse 34, you have the strategy. What he says, it starts with this. It starts with self-denial. Any person that wants to come after me must deny himself. Now, and listen, none of this is easy, okay? Would, it, would everybody agree that anybody in here that's tried to follow Jesus, would you agree that this is not easy? Dude, it is, it is not easy to follow Jesus in this world all the time. But it requires self-denial. It really, what it comes down to is living out John the Baptist's words. Do you remember these, these words in uh, John chapter 3? He must increase, but I must decrease. That, that's really what the life of a follower of Jesus is. It's self-denying myself. It's, it, it, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think. He must increase. I must decrease. When it, when it comes to choices that I make, uh, the statement I have is this. I have to choose to not choose myself. And Wow, that is hard. Man, it's hard to not choose myself. What I want, what I think, what I wish, what I... Because I'm being taken advantage of, or I'm I'm not... Theological clarification, just so we're all clear on this, you've got to deny yourself. And everything in my flesh and everything in the world screams at me to do just the opposite. Uh, Not only self-denial, but secondly, voluntary death. Did you notice what he said? He didn't say... Get put on a cross. He said, Take up your cross. Pick it up. Take it up. It is voluntary death. Again, he's, he's speaking metaphorically, but the cross, ladies and gentlemen, the cross was the instrument of death, one of the most common forms for the Romans. That's how they put criminals to death. That's how they put those, that's how they put them dead. They put them on a cross and they crucified them. It was an agonizing way to die. And Jesus just announced he was going to do it. And then he says, you got it. You have to voluntarily die. You have to take up your cross. It is uh, essentially these verses uh, in John ten eighteen, where Jesus says, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. He did it to redeem us. He did it to bring us eternal life. We do it, not for the same reason, but we essentially repeat Jesus' words. Not to redeem mankind, but to reveal mankind that the Redeemer has come. We do it. We say, no one takes my life. I'm, I'm voluntarily laying this down. Paul put it this way in Galatians. Maybe you've read this before. This is what Paul said. Now, he's still alive. He's still breathing when he says this. But he says, I have been, past tense, I have been crucified with Christ. What are you talking about, Paul? Jesus was on the cross. Two thieves were on the cross. You weren't on the cross. Matter of fact, you weren't even a believer in Jesus at that point in your life. No, but now this, that's how he—that's that's his life. I have been, I've just decided, I'm dead. I'm a dead man. As far as I'm concerned, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He's, Christ is living his life out through me. Christ is, is doing this in me. It is now Christ accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in my life. I don't live anymore. He lives in and through me. Do you understand that? Because I'm telling you, the disciples didn't get it yet. Do you get that? Do you understand what he's saying? And then the, and then the last part of the strategy, uh, divine direction. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, you die, and then follow me. Uh, by the way, all, all three of the verbs used here uh, in, in, that, in, that, in those verses, deny uh, self, uh, pick up your cross, follow. All three of the verbs um, are imperative in their form. but it Basically, uh, carries an idea of command. In other words, uh, Jesus is saying th- this is this is not an option. This is not an add-on addition. You, know, you go to the car dealership and say, "Well, I'll, I'll t-. no, it's not. It's not how this works." If you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what it means. It means deny yourself die to self and decide for yourself that you're going to follow me Uh, the last one by the way follow me is a is a present continuous tense verb in other words uh, the decision to follow jesus is not just a one-time thing when maybe i walk down an aisle or or i talk to my parents in my bedroom and i prayed and i asked jesus to come into my life no it's not that it's a it's a it's a right now every day minute by minute decision to follow him not, not just back then, well, oh yeah, I remember when I was 17, I accepted Jesus, or I was 25, or I was... Le- no. Right now, continuously, I'm following. So, in other words, what becomes important to Jesus becomes important to me. What matters to Jesus matters to me. The way Jesus treated people is the way I ought to treat people. The priorities for, for Jesus' life and ministry should become my priorities for life and ministry. That's what it means to follow Him. It's not just, oh yeah, I, I, I believe in Jesus. yeah. Well, here's how Jesus explained. All right, let me real quickly because I'm gonna gonna need to wind this up. Let me let me just give you something that uh, just has been uh, um, this idea of of uh, of what it really means. This this deal of clarification, what it really, genuinely, authentically means to be a follower of Jesus, is really important. Obviously, for our lives, and I've been I've been thinking some about. You know how this plays out and what this looks like in our lives and, and why it's important. I'll show you, give you the last one in just a second, why this all plays out. But I, I want to give you a practical way that you all of us can do this, this self-denial, voluntary death, and divine direction. Uh, a very, just a very practical, intentional way. Now, it's something we're supposed to live out and do every day in our lives. But um, uh, most of you, if you're part of cross-culture, know that we have historically done these things called uh, love-your-neighbor days. Y'all familiar with those love your neighbor days are events where we ask life groups and sometimes the church overall to uh, to do some act of kindness in the community. Some way to tangibly demonstrate or show the love of Jesus to people around us. Right. Some of y'all taking part in some of those things. Some have been have been, like I said, church wide, you know, family fun days and all those kind of things. But then the life groups have have fed Police stations and fire departments and all the picked up all different kinds of ways we try to demonstrate. We've called them "Love Your Neighbor Days," and and that's good. You know, it's fine. It's it's great, but uh, I, it's not enough. I'll just be honest with you. It's not enough. We we there's more that we have to do. There's more that there's we've got to be able to impact our culture to a greater degree, right? right? So I, I've I've come up with a little something uh, that the staff doesn't even I haven't even talked to the staff about this, but uh, just. It was an idea that came to me the other night when I, was, I had a conversation with Will and Jenna Brown. We were just talking about some things, and this idea came to my mind. And, and the more I thought about it, I thought, well, phooey, we can do that. <laughs> so we come up with this thing, uh, and here's what I'm calling it. We've got Love Your Neighbor Days. Now we're going to have Love Your Neighbor Nights. Now, when I first thought of that, I thought, yeah, that's that pretty good. And I, and then last night, I got to laughing about that. I got to think about it. Love Your Neighbor Nights. Whoa, I don't know. Sounds a little... I don't know if we're that kind of church or not. <laughs> but, but we've got to show people that having a relationship with Jesus Christ it makes a difference in their lives. We, and, and to do that, we have to invest ourselves in their lives. So here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to you're gonna have to deny yourself to do this. You're going to have to die to yourself to do this. Uh, you're going to have to follow him to do this. Here's what I want you to do. So here's, here's the first Love Your Neighbor night. Staff, y'all might want to write this down since y'all didn't know anything about it. But the first Love Your Neighbor night, here it is, Friday night, August 1st. I just picked a date. And I'll be honest with you. I really didn't pray about it. I didn't. I asked my wife, you know, and I, she thought Friday nights are good. But that, that's like six or seven weeks away, okay? So here's what, here's what I need you to do. Here's what I need you to do. And here's what will honor I need every one of us who are part of this fellowship to take Friday, August 1st, and have a neighbor over for dinner. Just have them over for dinner. Just, hey, Listen. Do not. I'll write more about this in the pastor's perspective this week. Do not tell them this is a church thing. Okay? Do not tell them this is a church thing. Do not bust a track out on them, or you know, drop your ten-pound family. By. No, I don't. I just want you to hang out with them. I want you to have dinner with them. I want you to get to know them. I want them to get to know you. I want you to begin to invest in people's lives. And I don't. I don't there's no secret about it. The hopes is that if we, if, if we can invest in people's lives. There, there might come a point as we cu- cultivate these relationships that they would want to know more about this Jesus that they see living out in. So, so I really, I want you guys to put it on your calendar Friday, August 1st. Uh, Friday night, have a neighbor over there. And if you say, well, all of my neighbors are, are churchgoers. Okay, this is important. I know I got to let you go, but don't, don't try and, I mean, it's fine. Have relationships with people that go to church. But you understand what I'm saying? Reach out to unchurched people. Reach out to unchurched people. Can, can I say that again? Reach out to unchurched people. I, I, I have found uh, that, that for some reason, church people love to evangelize other church people, but they don't like to evangelize the lost, those without a relationship with Jesus. So, And, and if you say, well, I don't, everybody in my neighborhood goes to church. First off, I want to know the name of that neighborhood. But, but secondly, if that's the case, then how, find somebody, you maybe somebody you work with, somebody, but some neighbor, you understand what I'm saying? And hey, just hang out with them. It's okay. You know, say a blessing before a meal. They won't freak out over that. But just, just do with them. Now, let me tell you, here it is. I I know I got to go, but I'm going to give you this last one. We're going to wind this thing up. Here's why we, we have to do this, folks. We have to do this. Here's why. It's the last one. It's a sobering realization that Jesus gives. And look at how he winds this thing up. After all this teaching, after all this, this, this revelation of, of how this thing is going to go and, and why it's important, all this kind of stuff, look at what he says in verse 36. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? My goodness. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lo- forfeit, lose his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a rhetorical question. What, when you stand before God someday, what are you, what are you gonna, you, you're going to trade him a, a, a 2007 Lincoln? And hope he lets you in for that one? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation. See, he's, he's, clear. He's, he's, he's kind of going at Peter again. He's saying, you better understand what this is about. And the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Uh, That's a word of encouragement right there at the end of that chapter, by the way. Uh, This thing can turn out really good uh, for followers of Jesus. But this is a sobering realization, folks. Every single person without a relationship with Jesus is lost. According to this. Not according to me. Not according to anybody. Except this this is what Jesus himself has declared. And the sobering realization for the person without a relationship with Jesus, the sobering realization should be this. Choose Christ before it's eternally too late. Because, can I, can I just say this to you? It will be eternally too late. There will come that moment. There will come that moment. Remember this verse, uh, Hebrews, I think it's chapter 9. And just as people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment. This is a reality, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a scare tactic. It's not a in-your-face, you know, eh, I'm going to heaven, you're not. Nah, 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 boo, boo. It's none of that stuff. This is. This is... This is a sobering realization for our lives. It is appointed to man to die once and then to face the judgment. Choose choose Christ before it's too late. And for those of us who have already accepted Christ as our Savior, the sobering realization is simply this. Share Christ before it's eternally too late. Because those neighbors that I'm trying to get you to have over for dinner, it's going to be eternally too late for them. Sooner than they can believe... If you're a your father, and especially if you've already raised your kids, you can't help but reflect back and think about, man, how fast that happens, how quickly. They're, they're a little kid out there throwing ball with you, and the next minute they're they a grown adult. It's just amazing how fast time passes, ladies and gentlemen. Share Christ before it's eternally too late. Father, uh, was, there was a lot of stuff to cover today and uh, getting through this chapter, and all this stuff was happening, and uh, Peter's just, just nailing it he's getting it so right and the next minute he's he's blowing it he's he's rebuking you after you've declared what your real purpose are that's not just to know that you're the christ of the son of the living god we we have to know what your plans are and your plans were to be the savior of the world but to be the savior as we said you had to be the sacrifice and to be the sacrifice you had to surrender yourself for us and we are eternally grateful that you did but then, Lord God, after, after correcting Peter and trying to put him back on the path, which, which you accomplished. Peter, I, I feel like last few weeks I've really given the disciples a hard time, but, but they were men who were willing to follow you. They didn't see clearly yet. Their vision was still a little blurry. They were slow to get it. But, Lord, I certainly know that's true of my own life. I certainly know that I am slow to get it at times. But I'm grateful that Peter uh, did become a giant of the church and he went on and was used by you, eventually literally dying, giving his life, executed for his faith in Jesus Christ. But long before he was physically executed, he had already voluntarily died in a, to, to his spirit, to his will, to his way. And so I pray for any person that, that might be here and, and still not made the decision. I was thinking about all the miracles that you've done, Lord God. For those people in Bethsaida and, and all the, the religious leaders, they saw them all. But it wasn't enough. They wanted more. And I couldn't help but wonder, for the person who's not yet made a decision to accept Christ, how many miracles do you have to do? How many pieces of evidence do you have to present? I don't know what it takes for a person. Ten, twenty, a hundred? Your word tells us that you're not willing that any should perish and that, people would come, that, people, that you would desire for people to come into a relationship with you. And so I pray that, and I pray that cross-culture w- would be an intricate part of that. That passage in Mark, follow that uh, that's our theme verse in, in Luke's translation. Luke nine twenty three uh, tells us the same thing. Any person who would desire to come after me he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's our theme verse at Cross-Culture Church, and that's what I would desire that we would do. And when we do that, Lord so many things are going to continue to happen. We're going to see people reach, we're going to see your kingdom expand. We're going to, we're going to see neighbors uh, commit their lives to Christ. Maybe a lot of them won't come to cross culture, but ultimately this is about your kingdom. And so uh, I pray for Friday August 1st even now. Lord God, I just it, it's 6 or 7 weeks out. It's plenty of time to set up an appointment with with our with some neighbor, some coworker, some person that we know that as far as we know doesn't know you. And so I pray for that night, that it would just be a time of relational building and, and for people being able to see who we are, uh, not, not put on, not made up, not perfect, but just uh, beginning to love on people the way you would. I think that's what you did, Lord Jesus. So uh, in this time, I just ask for every person in this room, maybe maybe right where they are, or maybe they're going to come forward, but, but to make a commitment to do August 1st. There's no paper to fill out today, Lord God, no commitment to sign, but I, I want everybody to do it. I want people without Christ to come to Christ. I want people who are following Christ to share Christ. I want your name to be glorified and your kingdom to expand. So as we take a few moments, Lord God, would you accomplish your purposes in Jesus' name.
0: Peter had his focus on the wrong thing. As Jesus said, Peter's focus was on man's interests and not God's. It's hard for us to believe that Peter would actually rebuke Jesus for announcing that he was going to be killed. But as Pastor Clay pointed out today, we can be guilty of the same thing when we question God's plans for us. Like the disciples then, we have to learn to focus on the spiritual, the eternal, and not the material temporal world. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7, and we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, We experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you.
1: I'm not the water, I'm not the bread.